Welcome to Terra Talks. This is your host, Kwame Terra. Today is November 24th, 2020, and I am currently wrapping up the first semester of my Master's in Public Health program at Xavier. I really enjoyed this semester, honestly. The professors were great. I feel like I'm being properly trained to be a public health professional, if that's what I decide to do on both the policy side and the research side. Um, I'm also becoming a professional procrastinator. I actually have a test in 28 minutes that I should probably be studying for, but instead I've spent the past three hours preparing this episode and other aspects of the podcast. So we won't talk about that, but I do want to talk a little bit about what this episode is about. So this episode is a lecture recording from an event that I attended at Tulane University featuring Dr. Mead Allison. Dr. Allison is the professor and chair of the Department of River Coastal Science and Engineering at Tulane. Um, this event was sort of like an introduction to a new program slash initiative that was starting at Tulane, um, seemingly to focus on the unique threats posed to the New Orleans area by climate change and sea level rise brought on by climate change. Uh, It was a really fascinating talk. I think he did a really good job of painting a bleak picture of the 21st century for New Orleans. Um, What will happen if we do a little bit to stave off climate change what will happen if we you know go all out so to speak uh, in preventing climate change and what will happen if we do nothing Um, how far underwater would we be by 2100 Uh, so yeah I thought it was a really interesting talk he mentioned some things about different tools that they use at Tulane and other institutions to determine for example how quickly a city or landmass might be sinking. I thought that was really interesting. They have this uh, laser technology, and he describes it in the talk, where they will shoot lasers down from satellites onto buildings and down onto the ground. And over the years, the the laser wouldn't won't reach as far down, won't reach as many meters or centimeters or whatever down, uh, which will in turn serve as a metric for for how far how much further down uh, the landmass is going so newsflash new orleans is sinking and there may be something that we can do about it there may not i don't remember actually haven't listened to the talk in a while but maybe he'll mention something but he does go into details about some things that um, we can do both on the political level environmental level and what we can do as individuals um, to work with the country and the state to um, try to stave off some of the more serious uh, projections uh, of threats from climate change to New Orleans. Uh, He talks a little bit about problems that are happening in other parts of the world. For example, he mentions that Indonesia is considering moving their capital out of the current uh, place that Jakarta is in thought that was interesting i mean climate change has to be real now right when a a country is considering moving their capital moving their capital to another place 
I don't know why, but when I first heard about this, I, I thought that they were going to be picking up Jakarta and moving it somewhere else. I wonder if that's actually what they're doing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the talk. It's really fascinating, very interesting. If you're interested in learning more about the program, I'll link the website to the program in the description below. Enjoy. So I realized I made a mistake in describing that one technology they use to determine how quickly uh, a landmass is sinking, but I really didn't feel like going back and re-recording the whole intro because, well, I have a test now in uh, 16 minutes. So revisiting that, um, over the years, uh, the laser shoots further and further down, not doesn't reach it as far down over the years, uh, indicating a, a sinking is occurring. Okay. <laughs> as Robin said early on, I'm going to try and scare you. I'm going to, the, the arc of my talk is a bowl, and that means we're going to go down the, the rim of the bowl, and I'm going to try and, and beat you over the head with the idea that, in fact, what what the provost said is true, that we are facing an existential crisis. This is the most threatened city in America and one of the most threatened places on earth in the 21st century. And we all need to, if we're not aware of that, we need to understand it and we need to begin advocating for change to do it, to do something about it. So um, it's gonna be a pretty bleak talk. I'm gonna hit you over the head with why we are so threatened compared to other places. We all sort of know the general threat of sea level rise and issues, but it's the compounding of a series of different issues that come together only here that make us particularly vulnerable. So um, again, in the latter part of the talk, hopefully I'm gonna talk about some things that we can do as citizens, and then I'm gonna talk a little more about the new department and some of the new initiatives that are going on at Tulane uh, to give you a feel for. Hopefully, you don't choke on your, your snacks afterwards. <laughs> okay, so, as I said, is uh, New Orleans, oh, and just, uh, I'm gonna have Samuel Langhorn Clemens help me because in the course of a long life, Mark Twain was eminently quotable and, and visited this region and had many things to say that I think are um, pertinent to this conversation. So you'll see a few quotes from Mark Twain sprinkles through this. So um, as it says, is New Orleans the city, the US city most at risk of extinction? And how is that tied in with the existence and coexistence of the coastal wetland fringe around us? This is the one quote I'm gonna put up with Mark Twain that I disagree with. Yes, it's New Orleans is a, is a picturesque place, but this is no dreamland and, and otherworldly place where you can't fret or worry. We have a great deal to worry about. So here's what I'm going to focus on. Um, and some of these things may seem familiar. I'm going to give you kind of an update on our thinking in general about them. Some of these things may seem less familiar, particularly if you're not a New Orleanian. Um, but what I'm gonna do is say that the combination of these five things makes our situation particularly acute. And I've got these little color-coded things over here because 
I'm going to throw a lot of material at you, and the idea is which one of these things am I talking about? But you'll see after the first few slides, instead of one of these things on the screen, there'll be two or three or four of these things on the screen because these things are interactive. If the land is stinking, that makes the rising of the seas worse, uh, and it makes hurricane storm surges worse. If the land level is lower, a given surge will penetrate further inland and the flood depths will be increased. So all of these things work together uh, in a negative reinforcement way, and we need to be cognizant of how that works. Okay. And just to this, you may have seen this, it came in and out of the news pretty quickly earlier this year, but I think this is a bellwether of things to come. This is the, the city of Jakarta, the government of Indonesia announced that they are moving the government out of the city of Jakarta. This is the nation's capital on Java. Uh, it's a city of uh, more than 10 million people by the latest population estimate. And in terms of our five signposts, their problems are really two of these signposts, global sea level rise and the sinking of the land. And the sinking of the land, as it says, is largely man-made. Man the extraction of so much groundwater has impacted ground levels. And if we look at our models by 2050, about 95% of the northern part of the city will be submerged. So I think that is a profound moment in time if, if, a, if one of the world's biggest cities has suddenly decided we can't make a go of it here with our government. Now, what's unclear in the follow-up is, you're, are you actually gonna try and move 11 million people out of Jakarta? That part hasn't been worked out. The government's going to officially move out, but what happens to all the people that are left behind is it's a little less clear. But I think it's a sign of, you know, what was the thinking that led these people down the road to our problems are so acute that we're going to do something this drastic. And I would suggest that we're not very far behind and we need to be thinking about these kinds of things. And if we're not going to pursue these types of extreme measures, we need to really find some new ways to make our city sustainable. Okay, so let's start with rising sea levels. Everybody's seen the hockey stick curves that that come out of various agencies, mostly the, the, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The IPCC does regular updates of its forecast for how much sea levels are gonna be rising. I put this one up because this was just released in September. Uh, you may not have seen it. It's sort of an interim report between their regular assessments, specifically about the ocean and the cryosphere. It just came out in September. So when you look at this, you see sort of the classic, we're in an accelerating sea level rise today. Things are gonna get much, much worse after 2050, the hockey stick part of the curve, um, as the negative reinforcement of all these factors takes over in how we're altering climate. This is a subset of some of the different model scenarios that basically you can think about it as the blue one is, if we decide to change our ways and, and be more carbon neutral, we can ameliorate some of this. If we continue along our present pathway, both politically and how we deal with CO2, the more extreme climate scenarios show us upwards of a meter or three feet or more of sea level rise by 2100. That's not that far away, right? If there's some students here, they could be alive in 2100. I certainly plan to make it to 2050 when things are forecast to 
really diverge and become more severe. But the reason I put this up is one of the things that the IPCC is beginning to recognize is that there are areas that we really need to focus upon that are in greater risk with the changing climate and particularly with rising sea levels. This gets a lot of press. The Arctic is going to warm very rapidly. Atolls, you're living right at sea level. Obviously, those places are really bad. But now they're starting to wake up to these two things. Coastal cities, like Jakarta, that are highly threatened, and delta areas. Low elevation areas and compounding factors to rising sea level make deltas particularly risk, uh, 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 risky areas as well. Well, guess what? You know, we live on the Mississippi Delta, and New Orleans is a city on top of the Mississippi Delta. And so the, this says that if we can change our ways in adaptation, things are going to be less severe, but we're still going to have some severe impact in these areas. This is a lot of the different curves and why the ocean, you know, I won't go into a great detail. Ice masses are melting at both poles. Um, the ocean is getting warmer and expanding. Um, and that heat content uh, then translates into things like more energy for storms and so forth. Um, the, and again, you can see sort of the adaptation versus non-adaptation. The reason I put this one up is that now we're looking out to 2300. And you see how greatly this divergence continues between we're doing a good job of, of changing our ways down here and we're not. We're carbon polluters. Um, long into the future. But the point I want to make here is that even if we change our ways today, we have impacted climate dramatically and we're going to see negative impacts based on what we've already done to the system, even if we change our ways tonight. So, and you know, those are significant amounts of sea level rise are one of those impacts. Okay, this is an interesting little um, one of these little uh, online, you can play a game with how do you flood the coastlines. And yeah, it's, it's a game I play, not everybody does. <laughs> I find it intriguing. Um, all it is, is I take the elevation data of the mainland United States, courtesy of the federal government, and I say, what if I put 10 feet of sea level rise along the northern Gulf Coast? What goes underwater? Well. South Louisiana goes underwater, but boy, lots of Texas goes underwater, major cities, Houston becomes threatened, Mobile becomes threatened, etc. Let's step it down, Three, five feet of sea level rise, that's a little less impact in these other areas, things still look pretty bad here. Let's go down to one foot of sea level rise. Oh, well, that's probably trivial here along most of the northern Gulf Coast. Where is it not trivial? centered over us, right? Even one foot of sea level rise, just based on elevation, can submerge most of South Louisiana that remains. That's a pretty stunning number. Let's do it one more time, just for fun, right? <laughs> okay. If you zoom in on that just to Greater New Orleans, here's a three-foot scenario, roughly where we might be in 2100, depending on how much we try and change our ways. This means there's nothing here. This dark blue color is there's no wetland. Anything above ground is gray. 
Anything green is living inside of flood walls that already exist. This is our protection system around New Orleans. This is the river levee system and the protection system, et cetera, on into the and different parts of the of the coastal system. So you're looking at if, if this is what we look like in 2100, we're going to be extremely uh, hanging out there on the edge, under living inside our flood walls with nothing around us but the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I would argue that this is a underestimate of the problem by far, right? Because remember, all of this says is based on the elevations of the wetlands, if I put a foot of water higher than, than they are today, how much of them will go underwater? Well, that neglects many other processes that make this a whole lot more complicated. Most of these processes are negative. If the land level is dropping, the problem's gonna get worse. If there's storm erosion, every time a hurricane comes in, we'll get land loss. It has nothing to do with submergence. It's actually due to erosion, physical erosion of wave energy and, and current energies. A, a little bit on the good side is anybody that knows ecology knows that wetlands have a way of maintaining themselves, right? They trap sediment in their top growth. They, as the plants die back every year, they accumulate organic matter. So they have some ability to keep pace with slowly rising sea level by building up their own land surfaces. Those are the kind of things that are not in these simple models that are worth considering. But I will say that based on <laughs> number two and three are gonna outstrip number one, as we'll see. So we sat about four years ago, we sat a group of 30 or 40 coastal subsidence experts down from across the world and we said, where is the coastal subsidence problem? And what are the mechanisms that cause the land to sink? And this was a figure we produced to kind of show some of the complexity. And all we're saying here is that there are a number of different mechanisms active on the surface of the earth that cause the land to sink. Some of these methods are working on geologic timescales at very great depths adjustment of the crust, they tend to be relatively low compared to the rate that the oceans are rising today, right? So the oceans today are rising at about three or four millimeters per year. As we go up to 2100, this is gonna start shifting in this direction with higher and higher uh, sea level rise rates. But the point of this slide is that this expert team said there are two mechanisms that work on the surface of the earth in the coastal zone that exceed in rate of relative sea level change the impact of rising oceans. And those are sediment compaction and fluid withdrawal. And the fluid withdrawal problem, which is the one that's inherent in Jakarta, is causing upwards of one to two feet of subsidence per year. So that's a really severe problem, and that's an extreme case. Well, guess what? Where are these mechanisms most active? Sediment compaction is most active in thick deltaic sediments where you have a, a pile of a, a very young, wet sediment. It self-compacts. Even if you don't add new sediment to it, it's still compacting itself. Can't stop that, right? Fluid withdrawal is typically associated with cities. We drill for water to drink. We drill for water for uh, cooling for uh, power plants, we drill for water for agriculture in drier regions. Generally where there are a lot of people living, there's a great demand for water. It typically exceeds surface water 
availability and so people go and mine groundwater. And if you mine groundwater, you cause the ground surface to collapse. If you live in Denver, it probably doesn't matter if you're going down a centimeter per year. If you live at one foot of elevation, it makes a big difference in, in your future uh, survivability or sustainability. So subsidence is complex, but hopefully I've convinced you that New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta potentially are, are at the upper end of these risk factors. Uncertainty remains, right? Um, I love this quote. I'd be gratified to answer promptly, and I did. I said I don't know. If somebody <laughs> asked me what, what are the subsidence rates in the Mississippi Delta, the answer is we're pretty uncertain about that. This is an example of Barataria Basin. So the city of New Orleans is right here, and this is the Mississippi River Channel. This is the basin that goes between the Mississippi and Bayou Lafourche. This is two papers that have been out in the last three years. This is from Tor Tornquist's group in Earth and Environmental Sciences at Tulane using one method of measuring subsidence in the Barataria Basin. This is a, another group that just, this paper came out a couple of months ago, using a different method of measuring, I won't get into the technology of it, both are valid ways to measure subsidence, but guess what? This one gives you like twice as much subsidence as this one does in the same area of the Mississippi <coughs> Delta, just outside of New Orleans. Well, that rate is anywhere equivalent to the rate that the ocean level is rising, the ground is sinking to maybe the ground is sinking twice as fast. This one might be as much as four times as fast it's sinking as water levels are rising. So we are in the subsidence value as it said on that earlier slide is probably as the planners look ahead in terms of reducing uncertainty about what our future is, getting a better handle on our subsidence <laughs> rates that the city and that the wetland surfaces lie on top of is absolutely critical. And certainly Tulane uh, is already involved in that effort significantly. Okay, let's, let's look at subsidence inside the flood walls. What's going on inside New Orleans? Well, this is the first look we had. This was Tim Dixon's group over in Florida. And they used uh, a radar satellite. It's called Inferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. <coughs> which basically means you fire a radar at the surface and you come back every year and you fire a radar over the same spot, you measure the elevation of the surface and that change through time tells you how fast the land is sinking. It's actually easy to do it over cities because you can bounce it off of buildings like this. They're very reflective surfaces. That's why it looks kind of speckly. It's bouncing off all the buildings in metropolitan New Orleans. And what do you see? Well, what you see are lower rates in the sliver by the river, moving out towards Kenner, moving out towards the lakefront, moving out towards New Orleans East, the rates get very high, right? Higher than the rates I just showed you in Barataria Basin. The consensus of this paper was that the highest rates are in areas of new infill. If you're gonna build new buildings and you put sediment on in order to build those foundations, that sediment's gonna settle pretty quickly. That's not a surprise. More importantly is it gave us the first evidence of what's been really going on as the city expanded since the 19th century out of its core along the riverfront, right? After World War II, the pressure was to build outward towards the lakefront, which was traditionally wetlands, swamps, marshes. So we, we canaled it, we drained it, we pumped it free of water, and we built houses on top of it. 
When we did that, we exposed all those organic rich soils to air for the first time since they'd been laid down because they were water covered. And peat oxidation is the result. The organic matter starts to break down under air and subsidence occurs. So here's the first evidence for why is part of the city under sea level? That's the reason. We pumped it, we pumped it free of water. <coughs> We've had continuing oxidation. It's ongoing as it shows. We've did most of that drainage now 60, 70 years ago and they're still subsiding. There's still peat oxidation, there's still subsidence in the city. So in addition to the subsidence that sitting on top of the Mississippi Delta, everything's going down by sediment compaction, we've made the problem worse in New Orleans by our attempt to manage water so that we can expand. This is a more recent study that Kathleen Jones Group at NASA JPL did and they used a, an aerial uh, LIDAR, or sorry, an aerial NSAR sensor where you fly it on an airplane and do a series of overflights, but the idea is the same. It gives you a little bit better resolution. And they identified another specific mechanism, and that's the groundwater withdrawal mechanism. The same thing that's, that's haunting Jakarta is actually happening here. You would think we've got the Mississippi River outside our back door, we have all the fresh water we need. Well, guess what? We still pump groundwater in New Orleans. There are hot spots over the energy power plants around Michu, and they're pumping water to cool their, their um, generator systems. There is a hot spot here at, across the river from Norco at Union Carbide. They're pumping groundwater for cooling purposes. So there's a clear evidence of subsidence in places that we are spot-wise. Uh, pumping groundwater, which says the water management of this city is not just what we pump out for rainwater and put in the canals and drive out into the lake or into the river, it's what's going on subterranean as well and what that interface of groundwater, air versus water is and how we cause that to go up and down across the, the footprint of the city that controls things like subsidence rate as we're beginning to learn. So. We engineered this system in the 19th century to maximize the extraction of water so that we could keep this place as dry as possible. Now we're realizing that that had some negative implications when we did that. Okay, well boy did we get a wake up call to that, right? <laughs> this is the depth of water in Hurricane Katrina. So we set up a system with, with inadequate flood walls, inadequate built construction methods, and basically under-engineered for the scale of the problem, but you have to be honest, the people who built that engineering didn't expect they were gonna be dealing with places that were seven, eight, nine feet below sea level. And guess what? The water sought its own low and the depths of flooding really reflected the, the places where we had gone in and using <coughs> subsidence had made the problem a whole lot worse. And again, surely it must occur to humans that uh, sometimes nature has a curious way of showing that we are her favorite. Um, yeah, that was not a real smart move. You could have envisioned it in terms of uh, how nature deals with, with things, but um, we learned a very valuable lesson. It cost us a lot, but we learned a very valuable lesson. Okay, so subsidence. I hopefully have convinced you that that's making our problem a whole lot worse. We're going down faster than water levels are coming up. Hurricanes also do something else. They eat away at the wetland edge substantially. There's a, 
Along with the storm surge comes big waves and comes big waves in places that they normally don't occur well into and in the wetland fringe. And so this is the path of Katrina in 2005. This is a pre and post map of wetland area. You can see some enormous areas of wetland loss caused immediately in a one day period. Between Katrina and Rita, which was the other big storm that impacted southwest Louisiana that year, we lost 220 <coughs> square miles of wetlands. That's a lot of wetlands. Add in Ivan the year before, adding Gustav, it just keeps going up, right? This is a major mechanism that is eating away at our wetland fringe. And of course, if hurricanes get worse, they're more intense, they're more frequent, this is gonna become a compounding mechanism in the future. Okay, so now we can say, oh my goodness, this is probably an underestimate, right? We're sinking like crazy outside the levees. We've made the problem worse sinking due to our activities with water management inside the levees. We're setting up a system that's further and further out of balance in terms of elevation. And even our new protection systems are subsiding. And so their level of protection is going down year by year both because they're subsiding and because water levels are rising, storms are getting stronger, they're, what they were engineered to do is now shifting year by year. Their, their ability to protect us is being reduced. <coughs> this is not a new problem, right? This is the tail of the tape for wetland loss in Louisiana. The red is not what's coming, the red is what's already happened, right? That's what we've lost since about 1930. And I like to put it in terms of states of the United States. We've lost somewhere between a Rhode Island and a Delaware in land in South Louisiana since about 1930. That is a stunning figure. If you told the citizens of Rhode Island they had to go away because their state was going to get eaten away, we wouldn't stand for that. But we, the American people, have stood for the loss of an equivalent amount of land over the last century. And of course, I would say now this, this is a little bit old. The risk factor is even higher. Well, another thing we learned in Katrina um, and that started to uh, enter its way into the state of Louisiana's future planning called the Master Plan for a Sustainable Coast is this idea of multiple lines of defense. One of the reasons we need a wetland out here, right? We need a wetland because it's uh, supportive of so many industries in the state. We need a wetland because it's nature that we find ecological value in, in ecosystems. But from a storm perspective, having all that coastal system out in front of places like New Orleans is invaluable. It's the, the speed bumps idea, multiple lines of defense. If you have a storm surge and big waves coming in, if you've got all these natural barriers that are energy absorbers, you're going to fare a whole lot better if the if the waves and the storm surge aren't beating directly on your gray infrastructure that you've designed to protect the system. So that has been one of the state's clarion calls that you can't have a New Orleans and you can't uh, have a protection system to protect the population of Louisiana if you don't also try and maintain this natural coastal ecosystem out in front of us. It has protection value as well as all its other economic values. Okay, so this I think is an interesting, you may not have noticed this, but many of you have probably heard of the master plan. And the master plan was the state saying, 
okay, we know we have a certain amount of resources in the next uh, 50 years to fund protection and restoration. How do we best spend it? We're going to create a master plan at the heart of which is a series of numerical models that we can test projects. We can get people to submit project ideas for either preservation of existing wetlands and community protection or restoration, building new land. Um, and we can test all of these using models and we can refine a best set of projects that fit how much money we have. And we can develop a plan that says, over the next 50 years, here's what we're going to build and here's how it's going to help Louisiana. And if we do that, we also have to understand that it's a moving target. We're understanding of subsidence, changing sea level rates, all of these things that are defining characteristics of these models that we create are shifting. So we're going to create a master plan every five years. We're going to reassess looking out 50 years each five-year plan. So the first five-year plan came out in 2007 right on the heels of Katrina and those types of events. And based on what we knew from IPCC and what we knew about subsidence and all the big drivers and what's going to change the wetland, the state came to the conclusion that we could build projects that would result in no net loss over the next 50 years of the wetland fringe. Everything is based on the concept of future without action, which is we're going to use as a yardstick we're going to model out 50 years if we do nothing but allow sea level rise and subsidence and all of these things to continue unabated, having their negative effects on the wetland fringe, what's the effect going to be? So the model said, here's how many square miles of wetland we had in year zero by year in the, they call it in this one, no increased action plan. We lost between six or 700 square miles of additional land loss in the system. Mm -hmm. If we build the projects we outline in this master plan, we almost end up at the same number, no net loss. But that was now 12 years ago. By the next master plan, things were a little bit grimmer, right? Now they started thinking in the way IPCC does. Well, it's really hard to predict what sea level is going to look like by the 50 year. Um, so we're going to run a series of different more positive and more negative scenarios against the future without action. We're still going to say that under the more moderate ideas, we're going to be in no net loss. But if things are worse than we are sort of the moderate idea, we're probably not going to completely offset land loss, this is a quote in the master plan, under the less optimistic conditions, but we significantly improve our resilience by building or sustaining land. In other words, it's still worth building land even if you're losing ground to the system. Here's 2017, which is the most recent master plan. And the most recent master plan has really started to break these kinds of things out. What are some different scenarios for sea level rise, for subsidence rate, for how frequent we're going to have storms, how intense are the storms are going to be, how much precipitation are we going to get? So they're now really trying to constrain this a little better. And, and look, you get a whole lot of difference in 50 years looking out in these different scenarios, right? Both in terms of green, where you build land, land is going to, you're going to get more bang for your buck in building land if some of these things are less negative. But also existing land loss, the loss of existing wetlands is going to be worse as you go into these more negative scenarios. So, both the red gets bigger and the green gets smaller in the worst case.
case scenarios? Well, trust me, we're, we're heading, we're certainly here, we're heading for here now. Uh, and the state has given up on no net loss. Pretty much this master plan says we're going to lose a lot of ground, but we still need to do it. Now, another thing that's a pivot in this master plan, which is the most recent one, is it's envisioning $50 billion in funding. And what it's done now is break it out and say, about half of that we're going to spend in restoration, which is really about wetland, either preserving existing wetlands or building new wetlands and to a lesser extent barrier islands and some of these other coastal ecosystems. But now we recognize that flooding is a big issue that the two cornerstones of the master plan are preserve and build wetlands and, and protect our communities. Those, there are other things out there, and they're certainly important, but if you dig down into the master plan, those are the two things that are really the controlling factors on where they want to spend their money. And so now, half of their money is going to risk reduction. Structural things would be things like building levees and flood walls, gray infrastructure. We haven't done you notice there's no breakout of green solutions yet. The state hasn't gone down that road uh, very significantly. Non-structural means things like elevating your house or moving you, which is already starting to happen in Louisiana, buying you out and moving you up the bayou. Um, so again, I think that's another important pivot that the protection side of it and risk reduction is now it, it sort of follows if you realize that you're going to lose ground in the future, the only thing you can do is put more money towards trying to help the citizenry adapt to that. Okay, so let's get back to the science. Hurricane surges were on the yellow, right? So we already said hurricane surges were bad. They eat wetlands. Um, hurricane surges are sources of severe flooding events to coastal populations. Here's a couple of different ways to look at it. On the left is a suite of synthetic hurricanes run by modelers where they said, okay, let's make up 600 storms. Let's give them a variety of paths intersecting the Louisiana coast. Let's give them a variety of speeds and intensities. And this map is not what one storm would do. This is sort of a worst case scenario. If you ran all 600 of those storms at every spot along the coast, What's the worst possible flooding you could get in that area? Well, <laughs> that's pretty bad, right? Seven feet of water on the LSU campus, that seems pretty bad to me. Um, everything south of I-10 basically exceeding nine feet of flooding is a worst case scenario in a very severe storm. Yeah, we're in pretty severe situations. So because we're so low elevation, because our elevations are being reduced incrementally, this storm surge situation is getting worse. The master plan goes into it from, okay, let's run the different scenarios. Let's start to say the water level's coming up, sea level's coming down. What's the worst case scenario now for these different um, uh, future environmental change scenarios? Notice the one place that's not severely flooded is inside the flood walls of New Orleans. There is this assumption that we are going to be protected by our flood walls, right? Which is, you look at a map like that and the first thing you say is, where do I run if a hurricane's coming and I can't get to Arkansas? I better get inside the flood walls in New Orleans, right? That's a false sense of security, I would argue. 
<laughs> okay, so let's talk about some new problems that now we're starting to wake up to. This happened in July, those of you who are New Orleanians. Suddenly, the media went crazy over this very small tropical system called Perry. And what lies behind that is a, a flaw in the system that was never envisioned when the protection system around New Orleans was built. Because remember, the, the system has been built incrementally. It wasn't somebody sitting down at one point saying, okay, here's what it's going to look like <coughs> in 2100. Let's engineer a system that best helps New Orleans. No, we started out in the 18th century building levees to protect the French Quarter, and we've been changing incrementally since then. The levee design on the river side is basically a response to the 1927 Great Flood and the federal levee protection that resulted from that. So the height of our levees reflects the way we thought about how the Mississippi River operated in 1927. I'd say that's a little bit out of, out of date in terms of <laughs> environmental scenarios in the future. But the idea is a very simple one. And the idea is that if a hurricane comes into New Orleans, it pushes a storm surge up, excuse me, across the wetlands. But the other thing it does is the river becomes a funnel for storm surge. It's a channelization of the Gulf trying to push its way up the Mississippi River. So you have these two enormous forces going at each other, the river trying to push water downstream and the Gulf trying to, with the storm surge, trying to push water upstream. You can actually make the Mississippi River stop and flow backwards during a storm surge. You think of the titanic forces involved to do that, it's amazing. But what the byproduct of that is, is that you can actually get a magnification of storm surge in the Mississippi River during these events. Well, if the river's low, that isn't gonna make a whole lot of difference. It's still confined by the river levees. If the river is high and you suddenly put that water on top of it, uh-oh, our river levees aren't high enough. So in, at the time that Sperry happened in July, the Mississippi River was at 16 feet at the New Orleans gauge. It was gonna to go to 19 feet, which is where the levees are supposed to be protected. And so all of this started to come out about well, wait a minute, there are low spots in the levee. The Corps is lying to us. There are places that are lower than we think they are. Downstream or downriver of the city, they're lower. The Leak Avenue Army Corps of Engineers facility, the most ironic thing of all, is probably the <laughs> lowest spot in the levee system for the river inside the city. The Corps said, no, 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 that's not a problem. They're higher, <laughs> they're higher than you think they are. Um, the Sewer and Water Board said, okay, if water comes over the top, we can handle it. It's not a big deal. Um, well, the river is projected to be three feet of storm surge on top of 16 feet is 30 feet above ground level out by the lakefront. That's a lot of head on water. So I'm a little skeptical of our ability to handle that. So why did this happen? Let me show you real quickly why this happened. So this is, a, this is a discharge as opposed to a water level, but it's equivalent, upriver at Tarbert Landing. Tarbert Landing is roughly about the Angola prison, just to give you an idea. It's a couple of hundred miles upstream, but it's fairly consistent with 
water levels in New Orleans and discharges in New Orleans. So this is the long-term average of the river's flow regime. The river tends to be high in the first half of the year, drop in the summertime, and, and then go up again in the winter. If you use it as an individual year, this is a long-term average from 1930. Every year, it's a series of peaks, right? It, and so if you look at 2018 in green, you see there's a peak uh, early in March, there's a second peak in April, there's a tiny peak in July or uh, late June. But in general, the river's following that curve, higher in the winter and the spring, lower in the summer and the autumn. Well, look at 2019, it didn't behave like that. In fact, it behaved in a way that we haven't seen since record keeping began. So as you go off the end of December 2018, you pick up the red line, which is 2019. The river went up in the spring and we opened Bonnie Care, the spillway, and then the river stayed up. And the river stayed up all the way until late July before it finally fell. We had a record length of flood in terms of the total amount of water coming down the Mississippi River this year. We broke every record in the book. Well, why does that matter? Well, nature threw us a bone on this one normally, right? The period of river maximum flow and highest river stage tends to correspond with a period of no hurricane activity. And when we have the most hurricanes, which peak in September, in the long-term average, the Mississippi River is low. So if the river is low and we put a storm surge on it, chances are it's not going to raise above the levels of the levee. What happened this year is that we went above record stage for much longer and started to impinge on a significant part of the hurricane season. And guess what? Barry came early in the season. It wasn't a big storm, but it said even three feet of storm surge could potentially overtop the levee. So with climate change, is the river going to, are we going to see more of these unusual events? Certainly the hurricane season is getting longer. We can already prove that in the record. It's been extended about a month in terms of total length, both in starting earlier and ending later, as the makes sense, right? The climate's warming up, there's more energy in the oceans, there's more energy to build hurricanes, it stays warmer longer. Okay, so let's, Here's an interesting comparison that I did. So this is the, the flood record now stage, water level at New Orleans. This is at the core dock right down here at Leak Avenue. This is the January to November period of 2005, Katrina, and this year, 2019. 2005 was a fairly normal year, a series of peaks early in the year, and then the river was very low and then at the end of August, we had Katrina, and look at the storm surge Katrina created. The river level went from about three feet at the gauge to about 16 feet. So water level rose 13 feet in the river during Katrina. We didn't notice because it didn't overtop the levees and the levees or the flood walls and levees were breaking in other places. That was the least of our problems, what the Mississippi River was doing. Rita had a lesser peak, even though it was over on Southwest Louisiana. Well, let's look at 2019, right? So in 2019, the river stayed high, right? The body care, that flood line at 17 feet is where they try and maintain the river when the body care spillway is open. Excess water that would raise water levels above 17 feet at New Orleans is drained off into the body care spillway. And the spillway for the first time at 
closed in May and then it had to reopen for the first time ever. It was open twice because it kept going. And then Barry was this tiny little spike. As it turned out, the storm went a slightly different path than we thought. Instead of a four foot storm surge, we got a two foot storm surge. We didn't overtop the levees. So we got a nice warning on that one, right? That nature is, set, is lining us up for a severe problem. Imagine if you put a Katrina storm surge on top of the Barry storm surge and you went from 16 plus 13 feet, 29 feet is 10 feet over the tops of the levees. You come with me that the core and the sewer waterboard can hold back that much water, I'd be really surprised. So again, I love this quote, right? We're at the bottom of the dish. This is in the 19th century he's writing this. As we swim along high on the flood and look down on the houses and into the upper windows, there's nothing but that frail breastwork of earth between the people and destruction. That's more true than ever. Okay, if that wasn't bad enough, we got another wake-up call starting in 2017, right? This is uh, the first big rainfall event in August. We got about six to 10 inches of rain over a few hours. The pumps couldn't keep up. We had severe flooding across the city. It was blamed on a, a decrepit pump infrastructure and that's certainly part of the problem. But one would argue that the system was never designed to handle extreme rainfall events. It's designed to pump a certain amount per hour, and if it rains at a rate above that, even if all the pumps were working at maximum capacity, that 19th century system couldn't handle it. Okay, this is what scares me. That was six to 10 inches of rain in a 12-hour period, right? We've had two wake-up calls in the region in the last three years or that have exceeded that by a factor of four or five over a short term. The Amit flooding east of Baton Rouge is, has been called a thousand year flood. In other words, areas that, that only would be flooded in a, a one-tenth of one percent frequency flood were flooded. They got 20 plus inches of rain over a 12 hour period, 100,000 homes when businesses were destroyed in greater Baton Rouge area. We know that story, right? Two years ago, Hurricane Harvey parked itself over Houston and dumped 40 plus inches of rain. Imagine either of those events centered over the city of New Orleans. It's not that hard to imagine. They're not that far away, right? This is a tropical event. Maybe this is a tropical event. There's still some question about whether this was a tropical event in formation. Again, the calamity that comes is never the one we prepared ourselves for. Nature's giving us some wake-up calls. We better prepare for these extreme rainfall events. It's another risk factor that we have not envisioned. So here's our protection system called the Hysteris. $15 billion it costs to put this around the city of New Orleans, right? We would all say that's money well spent for those of us that live in New Orleans. Um, this is a 500-year storm. It still says the level of protection was to a one to 100 years, a 100 year storm, a storm of an intensity or a storm surge that has a 1% chance of happening in any given year, right? So in other words, the flood walls are built to a certain elevation storm-wise that if the storm is big enough and exceeds that, a 500 year storm, water will come over the system and where will it go? It will flood the low areas of the city, right? But again, 
that envisions things as they were at the moment in time that these flood walls were built. We're subsiding out here, the ocean's rising, we're subsiding even worse in certain selected areas in here, the flood walls are going down, our level of protection is being reduced uh, every year by this, and the system is an impoundment, so from an extreme rainfall perspective, it's actually a negative reinforcement. The minute you impound water and don't allow it to flow away from the source of rain, you caused a, a compounding of your efforts. So what I would argue is that we need a total redesign of how we deal with water in this system is what has to happen. Okay, one last to continue. I'll finally get you totally depressed. <laughs> the bottom of the bowl is a magnified Mississippi. Now, if you followed climate modeling and predicting things like sea level rise and how warm it's going to get, one of the things that is true is that the modeling frontier has always been global scale. In other words, you can predict how much given a change in CO2 is going to cause a global increase in temperature. But the frontier of the field now is, what if we scale it down to a region? Can we begin to model what the future is going to look like in something of the scale of the Mississippi Basin? And this is the first attempt at a group over at Auburn and NC State and a couple of other places. This is a first attempt to model what the future of rainfall might look like uh, in the Mississippi Basin. That's not an easy thing to do because as it says, it's, it's not just a uh, prediction of how much more rain we're gonna get. You have to start thinking about, well, what's our land use gonna be in 50 years in the basin? Are we gonna be doing more agriculture? Are we going to deforest? Are we gonna change the evaporation, transpiration, the surface to groundwater? Are we gonna you know, build bigger cities? What's gonna happen in the future? So, that kind of modeling is not very easy to do. So I wouldn't say I would necessarily believe these numbers, but they're at least something to begin thinking about um, what could happen in the future. And if you read this, a quote from this paper is that their suggestion from the results of the modeling is that the precipitation is gonna be significantly enhanced by the 2090s compared to the 2000s. In other words, the river's gonna be carrying 10 to 60% more water than it was. <coughs> Remember those numbers. Again, lots of variables in here. So I don't know that I believe those numbers, but I sure would like to know what those numbers might mean in terms of what they mean for us. Okay, so I mentioned that our engineering system was built after the 1927 flood, right? We flooded 40 million acres of the lower Mississippi Valley. It was a catastrophic changing event in American <coughs> society, right? It's, and we've, if you read John Perry's book, who's a, a big Tulane partisan, you, you really know this story well. The, the flood system in the lower, the flood management system that exists today in the lower Mississippi River was basically a design right after the 1927 flood that was put in place in the next four or five years. And by about 1930, the mainline levees were in place and some of these other structures like Old River Control started to come into place by the 1960s. And so our engineering is now 50, 60, 70 years old in how we manage large floods in the Mississippi River. Three million cubic feet per second combined Mississippi Red River flow is just a little bit larger than what the 27 flood was. 
So they were just sort of saying, we can't envision anything ever being worse than 1927 if we could handle that level of flood and manage the water and save all the communities that live along the river, we'll be doing pretty well. And in 1927 thinking, that was a pretty good idea. This is a, another game I play at my desk sometimes. Um, this is the Mississippi River at Tarbert Landing. This is real data. This is what the river's discharges look like at this long-term monitoring spot, which is in the lower river, our longest-term monitoring spot, from 1930 when the mainline levees went in to the present. This green line means post construction of Old River Control. That's when we started managing the split of water going between the Ishafalaya and the Mississippi. <coughs> so during that time, there are a set of triggers in this, right? When, it, when you reach at Tarbert Landing 1.25 million, you start moving water down the Bonnie Care Spillway. When we reach 1.5, we turn on the Morganza Spillway. The whole idea is to protect the New Orleans-Baton Rouge corridor from excess flooding. That was really what the system was designed to do. Places like Morgan City, if you have the extreme flood and you've got to punch a lot of water into the Atchafalaya and flood the entire basin, there's a ring levee around Morgan City and there's a ring levee around Simsport. You close the flood walls and everything's water outside of you. So what have we done? Well, the first trigger, 1.25, has been hit 10 times since 1930. That's the red line. We've opened the Bonnie Care Spillway. <coughs> 10 times since 1930. We've opened it three times in the last four years. Is that a trend? Not enough data to tell. Twice, we've hit this trigger line, the second level of diversion, and we've opened the Morganza Spillway in 1973, <coughs> and we opened it again in 2011, right? So that's the present record. Okay, let's say the river's scenario in terms of global change and the extremes getting worse, right? Because one of the subtexts of global warming is global weirding, right? The extremes get worse, our droughts get worse, our floods get worse. Let's just neglect that and say, what if we took the present historical hydrograph of the last 80 years and we magnified it by 10% or we magnified it by 60%, what would it look like? Here's 10%, the low scenario in the modeling paper. Now, instead of opening 10 times, we've opened body care 23 times. Morganza, we've had to open 10 times. We're dealing with a significantly larger amount of water. The system is hopefully able to maintain itself. Although, you know, you've known what's happened in Mississippi with the complaints every time we open the body care spillway and spill excess nutrients into the system. There are implications every time we operate these flood control structures. 60% things start really looking bad, right? You basically open the body care spillway every year at least once. You open the Morganza spillway almost every year at least once. And guess what? Eight times in that 80-year record, you'd have floods that are large enough to exceed project flood. In other words, our ability to contain the river and maintain any way to move water out of the Baton Rouge to New Orleans corridor will be compromised if water discharges increase to those levels in the Mississippi. So we need to be waking up to that one as well. Okay, so there's our top five. <coughs> Hopefully I've convinced you that this is the most dangerous place to live in America. <laughs> if you want to be here in 2100. Right? <laughs> now we don't want to give up. Of course we don't want to give up. Okay, so the state started to wake up to this. They've started to think about it in terms of the economic damage, right? 
if we go to, uh, if we start seeing greater storm surges that are a compound effect of stronger storms and relative sea level rise, that combination of, of global and subsidence, we can see with these different scenarios, things are gonna start going up. It's gonna start costing a whole lot of money to recover from these things, and that's gonna get worse as we get further into the 21st century. But I would say that these things are completely an underestimate. They don't take into consideration things like extreme rainfall events. Will we have to completely re-engineer the flood control system of the lower Mississippi River? Imagine what that would cost in today's dollars as opposed to 1927 dollars. Not to mention convincing federal authorities in the other 49 states to carry such a uh, project out. So it becomes how much money do you have and how much political will do you have to rebuild after these events if they start coming at us more rapidly and more severely. Here's another little game I played the other day, which is to say I thought how many people live in the coastal zone of Louisiana? I've never seen that number. So I went into the most recent census information I could find in 2017 at the finest scale I could find, which turns out to be voting districts in the parishes. So these are the most seaward voting districts in the, in the coastal parishes, right? There are multiple districts in each parish. I sort of drew a line uh, inland from the coast and said, what's the population of that coastal tier today? It's about 155,000 people live in that coastal tier of a total in 2017 estimate of 4.7 million people in Louisiana. So a little over 3% of the population is living in the coastal zone. If you live in the coastal zone, protecting you, restoring you after a storm surge or a flood, giving you a flood insurance, <coughs> All of those things are an argument that's a policy decision and a political decision. And do you really have the, it's a, it's a game of numbers when things become bad. Do 155,000 people even have enough say in the state of Louisiana to get their community sustainable? I don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting uh, game to play mentally. We are, I thought this was a really good article, you might have seen it last year, um, that was in the New York Times. As, storm keeps, as storms keep coming, FEMA spends billions in a cycle of damage and repair. This was after the Harvey event in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Guess what their picture of the poster child was? The rebuilding of the Plaquemines Parish Detention Center in the middle of a coastal wetland in Louisiana after Katrina. It cost $105 million to do that. FEMA's assistance program has provided $81 billion since 1992 in a New York Times analysis. By examining projects across the ever-expanding flood zones, we've talked about why they're expanding, decisions to rebuild in place are often made seemingly in defiance of climate change and have a time-less structures just as defenseless as the next storm. So another question is, should we, the citizens, pay to restore that building, that courthouse, that person's home, that flood defense system, if it's just as vulnerable afterwards, if the cycle continues. Last year, President Trump rescinded an executive order signed by the previous president requiring consideration of climate change in the design of federally funded projects. In some cases, that had meant mandatory elevation of buildings in flood-prone areas. Then in March, FEMA released a four-year strategic plan that stripped away any consideration <coughs> of climate change. 
The Trump administration's approach on climate change ignores loud warnings from government agencies about the budgetary threat it poses. So it's being cast already in economic terms, right? The bipartisan Congressional Project Budget Office in 2016, for instance, said that hurricane damage would increase significantly in the coming decades because of the effects of climate change and coastal development. As a result, government spending for relief and recovery will outpace economic growth and devour an ever larger share of the gross domestic product of the nation. That's a pretty severe statement made by a nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. So Washington's waking up to this as becoming a numbers game. Okay, now there's a danger in extrapolating in some ways. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use climate change extrapolations. They're based on sound science and they're our best approximation of what sea level is going to look like or what uh, temperature ranges are going to look like. What I'm talking about is really more policy and political extrapolation, right? And this is a classic you know, Mark Twain, in the space of 176 years, the lower Mississippi has shortened itself by 240 miles. Uh, any person who's not blind or idiotic can see that over a million years ago, the river was 300,000 miles long, right? And by the same token, since it's shrinking, 742 years from now, it's only going to be a mile and three quarters long, and New Orleans and Cairo, Illinois will be joined in the streets. That is, there is a danger of that in our thinking, right? If we are extrapolating what the political situation and our policy making and how we design and protect, we're neglecting the fact that we can innovate, right? And we can change our minds, and we can change our politicians' minds about these things. I put this together the other day. So this is the IPCC report and the IPC on, on sea level rise. Well, guess what? Look how many presidential elections we have between now and 2100. Look how many midterm congressional elections we have between now and 2100. We have a lot of opportunities to change the mind of our governments about course of action to adapt to this. Because we've already said that we've made changes that we can't back away from. We can keep them from getting too much worse. We can't back away from them, so we know we're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to figure out how to spend wisely. We're going to have to develop new design criteria. We're going to have to develop new policies. All of these things need to happen. But this gives me encouragement, right? We can change our minds in the future. We can change our politicians' minds. We can go in new directions. But I would say that if you want to live in the coastal zone, there's going to be a lot more of this in the future. And so another part of this design is, do we really want to live with this, or are there better ways to do this? Right? Are there greener ways to do this that are both more sustainable, more visually impressive? I don't like the idea when I, I took this the other day, driving out of the side of the flood wall system down in St. Bernard Parish and looking back. It's kind of a bleak prospect when you look in and you see the communities inside the wall versus outside the wall. Okay, so let's finish up by talking a little bit about Tulane, right? And so if you look at the master plan, there's a whole lot of justification for what we're talking about trying to build here at Tulane, right? One of the ways that the master plan argues is that Louisiana's coastal uh, contribution to the nation's economy is hundreds of billions of dollars a year, right? The navigation industry, the fisheries industry, cargo, 
etc. The asset value of the ecosystems is tremendous. This means that this is what one of the reasons the state uses to justify their existence of a coastal protection and restoration program and also to argue to Washington that this has a strong national interest. And so what goes in hand in hand with that is innovation, right? New ways to restore means new science, new ways to protect means new engineering, and new ways to live in a water-rich environment means new ways to build architecture. It's basically all around the water nexus. How do you improve uh, our uh, way we deal with water specifically on the planet, right? We know it has huge value to us here in Louisiana. We're not the only place that's threatened, right? Sandy woke up people in New York City to there's going to be a lot of future risk to the nation's largest city. Jakarta certainly woke me up to, wow, what are the economic implications to the world if one nation's capital is talking about moving? Uh, and we're only in the early stage of this severe thing. So the stage is set for us to be good at this, right? We're, we're here. We have to be good at it because we want the university to be here in 2100. We want New Orleans to be here in 2100, and we want to be part of the solution. And this can be an incubator place by which these solutions can be exported across the globe. So we want to think local and act global. The state's done a little bit of work for us. They've said another reason to spend all this money in restoration and protection is it's going to generate a whole new industry and tens of thousands of jobs just within the state of Louisiana. Coastal restoration and protection is an industry. Uh, like five or six years ago, we had the first international conference on ecosystem restoration. It was, where was it? It was in the convention center in New Orleans. And I walked through the door and the talks were interesting, but the thing I found most interesting was to walk into the exhibit space and find 500 startup companies of 10 employees doing everything from growing hybrid marshes to figuring out green infrastructure to computer modeling to all kinds of things. This is a growth industry that is in uh, an upward trajectory unlike just about any industry you can imagine in the 21st century. We're Americans, right? We take a we take a calamity and we turn it into an economic opportunity. So, <laughs> so our economic opportunity is tremendous in Louisiana, and we at Tulane want to be part of that. And you know, if you look at these threats to the system and tipping points about when the ecosystem collapses or when there's a severe impact on the economy or public health, all of these things are interconnected. And guess what? You can kind of look at this and say, well, these are sort of the schools of Tulane, right? We have a public health school, and we do engineering, and we're interested in community resilience um, and law and all of these different things. So it's natural that Tulane can, we're not a large university, so what we can do is knit together the expertise we have across these fields to answer this Specifically in our arena, what I've been tasked with, along with the provost and Dean Foster and so forth, is we want to train a new generation of transdisciplinary scientists and engineers. The term is specific. Interdisciplinary means different people working together. Transdisciplinary means one person can actually think as an engineer or a scientist or an architect. They have that kind of ability. We want to build the cadre of researchers that are doing convergence thinking. What do I mean by convergence thinking? 
Well, guess what? We're ahead of the curve. The federal government's National Science Foundation just caught up to Tulane School of Science and Engineering 10 years later, right? The School of Science and Engineering after Katrina was founded to bring together scientists and engineers and departments that worked across those boundaries in what's now called convergence research. The convergence, the grand challenges today, food, energy, water, exploring the universe, can't be solved by one discipline. They require convergence. This is off the National Science Foundation website. Merging of ideas, approaches, technologies, Convergence blends scientific disciplines in a coordinated, reciprocal way and fosters robust collaborations needed for successful inquiry. Convergence builds and supports creative partnerships needed to address complex problems. We've been given the mission by the federal government to do what we want to do anyway, right? So we're in a really good position, and I talked to Dean Foster, and she goes to meetings of deans, and they're like, we're thinking about taking our schools of science and engineering and merging them. How's that working at Tulane? And so she comes back and she goes, oh, well, we're ahead of the curve. We better stay ahead of the curve, right? Because <laughs> other universities are gonna catch up. So as the provost said, we founded this department a little over two years ago. We think it's the first of its kind in the nation. The idea, like many new departments that have been built after Katrina, is to forge a science and engineering uh, coordination it's also absolutely unique in that it's focused on an area of the earth, right? The rivers, coasts, and deltas of the earth, this interconnected, what we call source to sink, set of basins and the problems that, I've, that are inherent in them is worthy of us focusing on this as our discipline, right? So we had a civil and environmental engineering department before Katrina. There was a lot of discussion about why we got rid of it that remains to this day when I go to the Tulane Engineering Forum and talk to civil engineering graduates that no longer have a department. And the answer is, we don't want to bring back a stovepipe disciplinary civil and environmental engineering department that thinks like civil and engineering departments elsewhere, right? And are we going to build a 50 or 100 person department overnight that can compete with Georgia Tech or Rice or even LSU in civil and environmental broad engineering? No, we can't. So what we can do is build something that's very specific that we think is at the frontier of science and engineering and that we can be the best. So that people say, I want to understand the coastal realm and how to adapt to it. Where do I want to go? Tulane is where I want to go. That's what we want to do. And we're going to train people in this new way. So we're still really early in the process. I'm going to talk about two really early initiatives just for a moment, so I'm on between you and a snack. One is uh, we have a the first rollout program we've had in this new department is a coordination with the Army Corps of Engineers. They have a lot of science and they have a lot of engineering talent. And guess what? We can train the next generation of scientists and engineers that work for the Corps and the U.S. Geological Survey and the EPA and hey, that's one way to change government thinking, right? Is to work from the inside. And so we have a joint certificate at the graduate level now that is co-taught by Tulane faculty and senior scientists and engineers from the Corps. They've never done anything like it. They send their employees, young employees, to universities to get specific training on rivers and coasts, 
but they've never actually been involved on the instructional side in developing curriculum and training their people. And so the other thing that's novel about this is that this is the first non-resident program in the School of Science and Engineering. We're reaching out into the online world using the hybrid method where we have live online lectures. We have students from, our, from four time zones now, from the USGS, from the core, from state agencies. We're starting to get students from industry, um, as well as Tulane students that are taking these classes. We don't have a fully stood up graduate program degree yet, but we have students getting a master's or a PhD in another program that are saying, this additional coursework is valuable for my training to make me in the uh, career prospect that other people don't have. Because I can tell you, there isn't anybody else in the nation that's, that's producing somebody that has this kind of level of understanding about science uh, and integrating river science and engineering. A couple of the high points in here is that meet the needs of, the Corps was interested specifically in their employees and sort of kind of bringing the new employees up to speed since they don't have the ability to train them themselves. But one of the things we've seen is a lot of interaction among the students, the Tulane-based students versus people who are government employees who are just a couple of years older than them. It's a network, right? It's about how do you do your job? It's about how do I get into your job? Uh, so there's a lot of mentorship that goes on between the students that was completely, I wouldn't say completely unexpected, but it certainly has been a benefit of the program. And so we have a series of river-specific courses that we teach. Sometimes we teach them in the fall or the spring, but they're totally unhooked, right? So in the early days, we're four semesters in, we're having our first graduates. We were accredited last summer, which was a big part of the process. Um, in the early days, we kept a, you know, I'm old, I still think in the 20th century way of instructing people, and so I was like, we always got to have a classroom for the Tulane students, right? So we had a classroom over in Boggs Hall, and about three classes in, I looked up, and every one of the Tulane students was communicating, including with me across the table, through their <laughs> laptop screen. And so that's when I said, we don't need a classroom, screw it, let's just get rid of the classrooms. And they were perfectly happy. And so it, it really is about realigning your instructional methods. Online uh, non-resident programs are not worse, they're just different. And it's all how you maximize the learning potential of the students. It's great for us. We're teaching a very specialized topic, and now we can reach out to people across the nation and one day the world. We've had people in Brazil asking, can you take your classes? You have to deal with issues like time zones, for instance, but um, certainly there are opportunities <coughs> for us to reach out and impact the community in areas that we didn't dream of by just people we can get to come and live in New Orleans for a few years. Now this, I'm glad the provost left because I'll probably get in trouble. <laughs> glad he's gone. That's why, that's why this one says 100% new. <laughs> yeah, this is a program that we have strategized with the School of Architecture. And it has been seen by the provost. It has been financially set up. We've been designed classes. We've worked out a financial plan but it's not 100% at the finish line where we're gonna unveil it. But it's such an exciting thing, I thought I would finish with this, which is we have a new dean, we have many new deans at Tulane. Uh, we have a new dean in the School of Architecture, and Dean Anaki 
is a practicing architect that runs a design firm that, that builds and lives with water. Right? They figure out how to live in, in flood-rich environments in rivers and coastal zones. It's not surprising Tulane thought this is a great person to bring to, to, to build a, new, a whole new direction into the School of Architecture at Tulane. Well, we started talking with he and his staff about, well, wait a minute, we like the way that you train architects, right? Because after you teach them the fundamental principles, you move into the design studio, right? Where you interact with faculty who come in and you solve a problem, and that problem can last over several cohorts of students and involve multiple faculty bringing their expertise to bear, teaching the student in a really a one-on-one -on -one environment. And we said, well, that really works with what we're trying to do with this kind of convergence training where what if we also said somebody who was an architect knew something about the part of engineering that involves water resources and hydrological sciences and geological sciences and ecological sciences and all the founding math and chemistry. Wouldn't that be a powerful person to design how to adapt in the 21st century to change in a way that in my 20th century stovepipe brain I can never do, right? I can't think like an ecologist, much less think like, a, like an architect, but I want the next generation to be able to do that. And so one of the things, so we, we, we've strategized this as a five-year degree, which is not unusual in architecture. When you come out of it, if you start as a freshman, you get both what they call a master of landscape architecture, which is not just designing gardens, it's in the modern age, it's, right, how do you live with water, um, and a Bachelor of Science in Engineering and River Coastal Engineering. This is looking like this is going to be our undergraduate program in this new department. And the design of this is such that not only do you get this cross-training and we have the ability to bring in faculty and these expertises into this design studio and really use that as an incubator for new thinking where we can actually come up with new design methods for living with water, but also, we're gonna train people in enough engineering that they can actually get a, a professional engineer license. Tulane will get back the ability to grant professional engineer licenses in civil engineering. There's a, in the, in the licensing board, there's a subcategory about water resources. So, one of the things that, that the previous generation of engineers at Tulane has argued is, why can't we have back civil engineering? Well, we can have back civil engineering. You can get a PE license, and you can do something even, even more broad in 21st century. And we also recognize that sometimes people are going to get super excited about this program that aren't necessarily entering freshmen at Tulane, and so they might come in with a bachelor's degree from another in a in a science path or an engineering path or a, a architecture path, and so we'll find a way to get them through this program and grant them a special degree called a Master's in Landscape Engineering and Design. So we're 95% there. We're not 100% there. We're the media. It's media worthy yet, but I'm pretty, you know, the provost said, right? So I think we're going to get this to the finish line. And this is really exciting. Um, and this, of course, is founded on we take the next step in the growth of this faculty. So these things have to go hand in hand. 
So I think that's my last slide. Yay! That's my favorite bumper sticker. So thank you very much for your time. And, uh, So I hope you enjoyed that talk just as much as I did. And like I said in the beginning, if you want to learn more about the program uh, or more about the threats to the coastal region in America and abroad, uh, or more about Dr. Allison's research, I put all of that information in the description section. This is a serious problem. Uh, I think that it's something that we should uh, keep on our minds regularly. Uh, especially regarding the things that we can do on an individual level uh, to stave off some of these threats. Um, Mardi Gras is canceled November 2021, um, but I, I really hope that it's not canceled in 2100 because New Orleans is no longer a city. Anyways, it's a personal note. I'm going to go study for my test now. Peace.